Hello, listeners. My name is Elizabeth Duar, and I'm the executive director of the Benicia Historical Museum at the Camel Barns, continuing our COVID quarantine camel cast, providing a camel's eye view of Benicia's unique history. I'm joined today by Jim Lessinger, a long-standing museum volunteer, the current chair of the Exhibits Committee, and our museum's research historian, whose book, The Benicia State Capital, was recently published by Arcadia. Jim, we're so glad to have you here to tell us about your research on Benicia's capital. I guess the first question that comes to my mind is, why and how did the state of California bring the state capital to Benicia? Well, it started with the California Constitutional Convention of uh, 1849, which was held in Monterey. And Robert Semple, the founder of Benicia, and uh, General Vallejo, who was then Rancho Soscal, which is the area where Benicia is, they were elected uh, to go to Monterey and represent this area. From the beginning, Semple and Vallejo lobbied to have their new town of Benicia or their new town of Vallejo made the state capital. Robert Semple was lobbying for Benicia and he became the president of the Constitutional Convention. Unfortunately, San Jose won out. They had a better lobby. And the state went to San Jose as its first capital. Unfortunately, what they found was a sea of mud. Then as now, Coyote Creek overflowed on a regular basis and turned the whole area around of San Jose into a giant mud flat. So they then started looking for another location, and they had a vote, statewide election, and selected Vallejo. When they got to Vallejo, the buildings were a mess. In the meantime, what had happened was Robert Semple and the city fathers of Benicia decided that they were going to build a building as a city hall, and by the way, it would be perfect as a state capital. It's the old idea, if you build it, they will come, and they built it. And the state came. Am I right in saying that they called it a Greek temple on the frontier and that the city of Benicia printed its own money in the form of bonds to finance this new city hall? That's absolutely true. That was deliberate. The choice of the Temple of Minerva as a prototype, so to speak, of the facade of the building was deliberate to build this Greek temple on the American frontier. It was a unique building. The other thing is the city actually did indeed go out and engrave printing plates. They went out and bought a press and they printed bonds, essentially printing their own money to pay for the building. And of course, there was some scandal involved in that. They lost track of the bonds and there were some bonds that they had not logged in that were sent out. And the city ended up getting mired in litigation later over the bonds. Well, it's nice to know that the bonds created the building that is, in fact, still the symbol of the city of Benicia. And although the history of Benicia as the state capital was brief, what happened during the 13 months that the state was here as the capital? I guess that was February of 1853 to 1854. If you could just tell us about some of the events that happened at the state capital or indeed some of the legislation that was passed or at least discussed. There was a lot going on. Uh, Newspaper articles and the official records of the legislature document that. First of all, there is the inauguration of Governor Bigler. But then there was this 
underlying battle over slavery and the battle over whether or not California was going to stay in the Union. And this battle was intense. Uh, it created a major scandal called the Peck Affair, where some people attempted to bribe Senator Broderick, state senator at that time, to vote for the Fugitive Slave Act, while others tried to bribe other people against the Fugitive Slave Act. But Jim, am I right in saying also that at the time, bribery was not against the law? How else would they eat? <laughs> that was the saying of the day. Wow. It was not against the law, but it was against the procedures of the legislature. So there was a trial. Uh-huh. And then when it came out that pretty much everybody was on the take, they just kind of adjourned to the committee one day and that ended the trial. However, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. And it was a major milestone in that the pro-slavery faction was able to get this passed. The abolitionists were able to limit the time on the Fugitive Slave Act to a short period of time. It had ramifications throughout the state in that a lot of African-American people left the state rather than risk themselves with the Fugitive Slave Act. And some slaves, quote, fugitive slaves, unquote, were indeed apprehended. And then returned. Is that correct? They were returned to slavery because there was yes. slavery in California at the time. But we did enter the Union as a free state, did we not? Yes. That meant that if somebody was born of a slave, they were free. The problem was this California was part of the Union particularly after the Dred Scott decision, what it meant was is that if somebody's a slave in one state, they're a slave in all the states. That's the, called the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. So unfortunately, uh, we had about two, maybe about a thousand slaves in the state of California by the time of emancipation in 1865. In a previous podcast, Dean Putong did discuss the activities of the pro-slavery Southern shivs, I believe they were called here. So that's something that we've touched on before and something that a lot of people aren't actually aware of. There's something else that you had mentioned at one point in the talk that you gave at the museum, which I found particularly interesting and colorful. You said that statewide there was a problem of cows and pigs running amok in the city streets of California, causing accidents by running through the legs of the horses. Is That's that right. They were everywhere. They were, they were in downtown Benicia, right on, on First Street, there were these pigs. And it was a major source of accidents. The horse accidents and buggy accidents and, and carriage accidents, these pigs running between the legs of these horses. And it caused quite a bit of a problem. So this was one of the first things that came to the legislature was what to do about these cows and pigs. So that was the first law where if you have a cow, if you have a pig, you have to put them behind a fence. So that was the first legislation passed? Right, the- on cows and pigs. That's very and, interesting. And, and ironically and sadly, probably more thought went into the cows and pigs than went into the Fugitive Slave Act. Isn't that pathetic? It is pathetic. Uh, other things that came up was the map of the state. Mm-hmm. And that was important because they wanted to stake out, so to speak, the boundaries of the state so they can get the gold country right. and get that gold revenue. So then did they have to sponsor the survey of the state, et cetera? Is that part of the legislation that was passed? They paid for the survey, which was actually done in conjunction with the topographical engineers of the United States Army. 
Right. And then they paid for the printing, which was done in San Francisco, but released here. And we have one of the original maps here in our collection in the museum. Fabulous. We're very, very lucky to have that. That's right. And I also understand that a number of organizations, infrastructure was basically discussed and then enacted in Benicia. Important infrastructure. The prison system was started, specifically San Quentin Prison. The state library was started, which was very important because we're very lucky to have an excellent archive and an excellent collection of books, particularly the California fiction novel collection. Mm -hmm. The insane asylum in Stockton was started, which became a model. School systems were started, superintendent of schools. Also, an agricultural institute was started, and you can drive over to it today and see it. It's over in Woodland. So there's a lot of these institutions that have been... Really borne fruit. Yeah. Right. Now, there's a very interesting topic that I wanted you to discuss. It's a topic that we could spend hours and hours on, but if you could tell us a bit about the legislation or the discussion as it concerns the California Rangers. Who were they? The Rangers were hired, oh, I don't know, Bounty hunters. They were hired hunters. They were man hunters. Who hired them? Hired by the legislature uh-huh. and supervised by the governor. Right. And their job was to abstentiously chase down banditos. Mm-hmm. And that was a problem. That was a problem back in the Spanish days. Banditos and pirates sure. ranged uh, all up and down the state. Well, we're talking about the Wild West, aren't we? Uh, oh, yeah. The, the part of the Spanish Maine. And so California financed the California Rangers to chase down banditos. They also chased down Native Americans. And that was a problem. Today we're realizing that they basically were practicing ethnic cleansing. And today we realize that they were responsible for the brutal murder of a lot of Native Americans. And as you know, we have a document upstairs in the entry of the building that talks about Governor Newsom's edict that talks about the official apology from the state of California about the horrible things that happened in California. And he has also initiated a healing council. And in several years' time, we're going to get the findings from that council, and we will be able to add a variety of things in terms of more research and more documents that speak to these horrible incidents. True story. According to the Secretary of State, California Secretary of State, we were the very first institution, the very first people who requested a copy of that proclamation. That is true. (laughs) We were the very first. Uh, That I thought was interesting. Unfortunately, we had to pay the original copy fee. But (laughs) we don't mind that. uh, We don't mind that and and other people. Now, there were also a number of discussions and attempts at trying to prohibit the consumption of alcohol. Lots of teetotalers in the state of California at the time. The 1853-54 California legislature was called the Legislature of a Thousand Drinks. (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was fueled on whiskey and beer. And I counted at least uh, 10 breweries that opened in Benicia during the time the legislature was there. And the uh, mines up in the Sierras, the gold mines and silver, were fueled 
by alcohol. And demon, demon drink. Demon, demon drink. drink demon. So here comes these lady groups saying, we want prohibition. We want to prohibit demon whiskey and beer and other alcoholic libations. Well, the, the legislators were very courteous. And they're very <laughs> nice to the ladies' groups. And they listened Light, to them. but, but dismissive. There were no dismissive. way that they were going to cut off a major fuel of, of, of the not. gold rush, of course which, not. of course, was alcohol. Yeah. And, of course, we have to talk about the anti-Chinese immigration laws. Well, you know, the Chinese wanted to immigrate to California for the same reason everybody else did. Sure. They wanted jobs. They wanted a future. They wanted uh, agricultural lands. Some of them, a lot of them wanted to get some gold. And at the time, China itself was in a state of political unrest and coming apart. Absolutely right. And, of course, what happens is, is that they get to California. And basically, you had a bunch of white prospectors and settlers coming in from the south, bringing their slaves with them, and from the north, coming in without slaves. And basically, everybody resented the Chinese because it was competition for labor. Of course. Uh, And they didn't want more competition for labor. And there was racism as well. So obviously, the capital was an extremely busy and productive place. Why did the state then leave Benicia as a capital and move to Sacramento? Well, the easy answer is $680,000 in bribes. Mm. In other words, Sacramento was able to mount more money in bribes than any of the other cities like San Jose or Vallejo or San Francisco or whatever. And, you know, I mean, how else would they? Money talks. Money talks. Money talks. And Sacramento, I guess, already had a building? Sacramento also had a building. It was a courthouse. And it was new. And it was bigger than the capital in Benicia and could accommodate the entire state government in this one building. And, of course, I think they made the argument that Sacramento was closer to the mines. To the Well, government. yes. You see, Benicia had one water route and two land routes, one coming in from Vallejo and one coming down from Cordelia and Fairfield. Sacramento had seven land routes. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not talking freeways. We're talking about wagon ruts. Right. But they had seven land routes and three water routes. Mm. So they had a very active waterfront where old Sacramento is today. Right. So it was a bustling town. And the people who had businesses there, hundreds and hundreds of businesses, they had lots of money. They had lots of money. Sure. Uh, And they offered the the, uh, state, the sun and the moon and the stars. They gave them a huge plot of land, which is now the very beautiful Capitol Park, including Sutter's Fort. They gave them the use of the Capitol building. And, of course, everybody moved in just in time to get flooded out. And that was the problem with Sacramento was, is it a flooded? Well, from what I understand, when the decision had been made to do the move, I guess they picked up everything and disappeared, not overnight, but almost overnight. Not almost overnight. Once they voted that they were going to move to Sacramento, they were gone within 24 hours. Well, And ironically, what happened was you saw a lot of the buildings, entire buildings in Venetia, suddenly get torn down, thrown on a boat, and taken up to Sacramento. Oh, my word. 
So what happened to the building immediately after the Capitol was no longer the Capitol? I mean, we're talking about a very short amount of time. That's but from 1854 until I guess it became a state park in 1947. What was that building used for in that very long, almost 100 years? It had a number of uses, and a lot of them, if not most of them, were simultaneous. So you had the city council met there until 1954. That's 100 years the city council met there. The county seat was there for two years. There was an extension constructed in the back. The bottom was used as a jail for about 80 years. The top was used as a storage room. One of the front rooms was used as a county courthouse for about 40 years or so. Wasn't there a dance hall in there? Yeah, upstairs. <laughs> upstairs, there was a, actually, it was a dance hall theater combination. Lovely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it was also used as a schoolhouse. Two of the rooms downstairs were used as a schoolhouse for about 30 years. <laughs> One of the rooms was used as an office of the superintendent of the schools for Benicia. Uh-huh. There's a lot of storage space upstairs. The fire department headquarters was also downstairs and shared space with the city clerk. And I guess the uh, militia was headquartered there during the Civil War? During the Civil War, the Benicia militia was headquartered there. And they made regular rounds and uh, played war. Oh, I think that is really, really uh, an interesting and unknown fact. And I guess uh, the USO used it during World War II. Right. The USO used it during World War II. And it was during that time that the Port Chicago explosion, the fourth largest non-nuclear explosion in North America, blew through and blew out all the windows. And we do have a lot of documents that reference that. Eventually, the Capitol did become a state park. Do you know anything about that transition? Was it quickly done? Was it easy? Um, Well, in retrospect, it looks to be relatively easy. In 1947, Steve de Benedente proposed at a meeting to the native sons of the Golden West that the building should be turned into a state historic monument. And it fell on receptive ears. Everybody was receptive to the idea. The city bought on very quickly. The city council bought on to it very quickly. In 1949, the bill passed the legislature and was signed immediately into law by the governor, designating the building part of the state park system and funding the construction. And the governor loved it. He bought onto it right away. Then in 1950, it was deeded to the state. Ironically, the state forgot to record it, but that's another story. And then in 1954, the state threw the city out because it was uninhabitable. In other words, it had disintegrated to such an extent that people couldn't go in anymore. And so the city got thrown out. They got asked to leave. For example, the pigeon droppings were so thick that they had to be shoveled out. It was a mess. So in 1956, the restoration began. And, you know, the state really used a lot of innovative and creative solutions to restoring this building. They had already restored the Wells Fargo Bank in Columbia, uh, in the gold country. So they went in and they researched the building first, did a tremendous amount of research. I was able to access that research for my own. Then they gutted the building, and in the process, were able to figure out the materials that were originally used and the original floor plan and other items of the original construction. Then what they did was they went in and they created furrows in the interior of the brickwork. These deep furrows were about uh, six inches deep, 
about three quarters of the width of the brickwork. And that was to install a support system that would make mm-hmm. the building, of course, a more secure, but oh, yeah. also um, earthquake resistant. Oh, yeah. It's earthquake resistant. They built this frame, steel and concrete frame. So essentially what you have there when you look at the building is is a steel and concrete frame with a wood and brick cladding. How long did that take to do? It sounds as if that would have been an enormously complicated project. The whole process was begun in 1949. It was finished in 1958. So it took them nine years through the entire process, including research. Oh, that's something. And then they didn't have a lot of original fixtures, did they? Where did they find find them? They found a warehouse in Sacramento, a state warehouse. And lo and behold... Literally in the back, underneath a bunch of junk, they found some of the original tables and chairs. Well, that was fortunate. From 1854. And so they brought them out and they sent them to a prison uh, workshop where a group of prisoner woodworkers recreated all of the chairs and recreated all of the uh, tables and benches. And uh, so today you can go in and you can see where the recreations are and where the originals are. Well, we're extremely lucky to have such a beautiful Capitol building, to have such a marvelous tableau that basically allows people to see what the Capitol looked like and how it would have been set up originally. Unfortunately, we're about out of time now, Jim, but I understand that you've been working with a number of people on the exhibits committee, and of course, that includes me, on the next exhibit, which is going to be on churches and schools since we were known as the Athens of the West. So I'm presuming that at some point we'll be able to do another podcast on that very interesting topic. Oh, yeah. It's a very interesting subject. We are so happy that you could share some time with us today and share your information. As always, we're pleased to provide a peek at our history here and to invite people to come to the museum We will be reopening, we hope, on Saturday, November the 14th. You can check the museum website archives online at www.beniciahistoricalmuseum.org for our podcasts, images, and narratives. And if you wish, you can donate online and be sure to like us on Facebook. Remember, the history of California is written in the story of Benicia.